we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia. Today, I'm talking to one of my favourite scientists, Beverly Van Praff. Beverly has been studying the giant Gibson earthworm for 30 years. Combined to a very small area, these two metre long earthworms live in wet burrows right beneath our feet. Here, we talk to Beverly about the misconceptions about the worm, the conservation issues they're facing, and the time David Attenborough visited to document this unique species. Have a listen to this. That's the gurgling of a giant Gippsland earthworm, and we'll get to that very soon. But first, there's this really iconic image of you holding one of the giant Gippsland earthworms, and you look like, you know, you're, you're maybe in your 20s. It's just iconic. What was your road to becoming the person who knows these earthworms best? Did you set out to study them, or did it sort of surprise you? Look, it really did surprise me, and it wasn't a straight trajectory certainly not to giant earthworms and if you had have asked me probably even at high school or um at university while I was doing my science degree whether I was ever going to work on earthworms I would have said don't be ridiculous because they kind of weren't really my favorite animal um although looking back as a child I was right into collecting all sorts of animals at home and keeping them I used to often get the emperor gum moths in there while they were still in their cocoons and watch them hatch into caterpillars and then when they turn into butterflies, release them. So I did love doing that. And in terms of just general science, as a child, I'd always collect snakes, uh, not snakes, sorry, um, scared of snakes, um, lizards and frogs, lots of tadpoles and watch them turn into frogs. So I always had this huge fascination with science um, and just the world around me, I guess, but not really earthworms. And then I, so in, at high school, I studied biology and English and English literature, and I did love literature. And I kind of at that stage um, wondered about whether I would become somebody who was a writer or worked in English or whether I would become a biologist. And I did decide on biology because of um, the stuff around me that I really loved and, and really that just that general love of animals. And a big hero was... Um, David Attenborough and I remember for when I decided on biology my mother bought me Life on Earth by David Attenborough and during the school holidays between high school and university I actually devoured that book and just thought wow I'm going to be a biologist one day just like David Attenborough and then the most wonderful thing happened later on in my career when I actually met David Attenborough when he did um, some work on life in the undergrowth and that series and he came down we spent a week with him 
um, actually filming the giant Gippsland earthworm. So that was a really lovely circular moment that happened and it was probably one of the highlights of my career. But but way back then when I started out, I certainly didn't believe I would ever work on a giant earthworm. And do you remember, you know, your first moment holding one? I do. I do remember it very clearly. So I actually, I followed the trajectory of working on mammals. So that's what I thought I would work on. And um, then when the project I was working on didn't really work out, I heard about this wonderful project um, that was on giant earthworms, which was funded by the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And because I thought my real interest was in conservation, I applied with the mu- to the museum and we had a joint project with the museum and La Trobe University um, to look at the conservation and biology of these giant earthworms. So really early on, I went out with my supervisor, uh, Peter Rawlinson and uh, Dr. Alan Yen from the museum. And we went down to South Gippsland, down to Locke, to a property um, in Locke owned by Bill Green. Bill Green was a real character and he was a councillor for a long time and he had a lovely dairy property. And that's where I ended up doing my PhD. So we went down there on that first day to meet him. And that's where I was introduced to my very first giant earthworm. Um, And he was a very funny character. And he actually dug up one of these earthworms for me. He thought it was really quite hilarious that this city girl who hadn't spent a lot of time in the country had come down to his property to look at these giant earthworms. And being the sort of man he was, there was lots of lewd comments also about these rather large earthworms. So he made me hold one and I I was a little bit scared because I am scared of snakes and I have that paranoia to this day. And looking at the earthworm at first, all I could think of was, is this big snake? I'm quite scared. But once I held it and saw how gentle and beautiful they were and how, well, quite unique they were, I fell in love. and. Um, have continued working on them, obviously, for around 30 years. So, yeah, that was my first experience of actually meeting one face-to-face. And it's funny you say that you mistook it as a snake because early colonists also thought it was a snake, didn't they? They did. When they were, the worm was first discovered in the 1870s when they were putting in a railway um, up near Moe and Bunyip, which is just north of Warrigal and Brandy Creek. And the surveyors were doing their work. And when they dug it up, they, you know, didn't know about giant earthworms. And so they saw this really large animal that did look a bit like a snake. And, um, yeah, they, they, they mistook it for it. And, and when it was sent down to Professor McCoy at Melbourne University to describe it, there is actually a funny story in his, um, ramp t- his talking about paper about that um, experience where one of the technical assistants walked in and, uh, saw the giant earthworm on a table and thought it was a snake and ran out the room. So it is easy to mistake them when you very first see them as being these enormous snakes. Mm. Now, from the pictures, the giant earthworms look really long, heavy and very slippery. Would that be an accurate description? Yeah, it would. They're, um, they're kind of, their skin is quite moist because they need that moisture to move around in the soil. And they have these dorsal pores which um, excrete a salomic fluid, which also makes them, adds to them being a little bit slippery. But um, when you actually hold them in your hands, they are, they're kind of really, they, they're very graceful, but they can't move around and wriggle too much like other earthworms. So they'll, they'll stay quite still. And um, 
yeah, and they're quite easy to hold. But, yeah, you, if you're not really careful and you get a lot of that salomic fluid, they could easily slip through your hands. And there, there's lots of, so these earthworms, I suppose, you know, a lot of the things people ask about them, well, how big are they? And just like fishermen, you know, there's lots of exaggerated stories around size, but they're generally, um, they average around about that 80 centimetres to a metre. But I've certainly found them up to two metres in length and weighing as much as 400 grams. So that, that is really quite large considering, you know, your normal earthworm is maybe three or four centimetres and only a couple of grams if that. And when you have this really long earthworm like that, it actually takes two people to hold them um, because they are so long. And, and one of the things that probably has led to people exaggerating the size of these earthworms is there was a bit of an old trick where um, you would have two people holding a couple of worms end to end to make it look like this really ginormous earthworm of, you know, three metres or more. Oh, my God, so sneaky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And obviously they're, they're confined to this very small area in Gibsland. Why is that and what does their habitat really look like? So now, so they are found in an area of about 40,000 hectares of um, south and west Gippsland, so around the Lock, Corrumburra, Warrigal region. And the area now is all pretty much all the, it's a beautiful area and it's all the rolling green hills of that it's quite well known for, so it's dairy country. But way back in the 1800s, it was tall, um, wet forest covered that area. But by around about 1930, most of that had been converted to pasture and used for farming. So there's not a lot of remnant vegetation left now, but the earthworms do still survive in pockets of suitable habitat throughout that 40,000 hectares. So they're actually not widespread. They're found in these pockets of quite restricted um, areas where you find this combination of um, habitat characteristics that allow them to survive in those areas. And you've been studying them for so long. How do you go about finding them? Because they are so elusive. Yeah, they are. Um, and they don't come to the surface. So a lot of people actually um, confuse the mounds or the chimneys of yabbies with the castings or burrows of the giant Gippsland earthworm, but they're not. They do, however, like similar characteristics. So often if you see yabby mounds, you often know that you've got these really moist soils that the earthworms like too. So one, there are a few ways I look for them. One, you may have heard about this um, gurgling sound that the earthworms make. Well, it's not actually the earthworms making the sounds themselves, but as they move through their wet burrows, which they require to help with movement and to survive underground, um, it, it makes this really loud sucking sound, a bit like water moving out of, of you know, going down a plug in a bath. So it's really very loud and they normally respond and move quite quickly if you walk over their habitat. So one way is by targeting the habitat where we know they occur. So that is along stream banks is the most common area, as well as um, south-facing hills where you've got soaks and quiet areas that remain moist all year round. So we'll look at those areas, we'll walk over them. If we hear them, bam, we've got an earthworm. But it's not that easy because they don't make that sound all the time. And often if you've heard it once, you won't hear it again, particularly so if you're trying to show somebody. Um, so the other way we actually look for them is by digging um, very small soil quadrats and look at their, looking for burrows. 
So the burrows of either earthworms are around um, two centimetres or more in diameter. And often on the inside of those burrows, you can see the imprints of the annuli or the rings that go around the earthworm. So therefore, you know you've got a colony of earthworms in that spot. So they're the, the two main ways. You can't see them from above ground, unfortunately. So you've got to find other methods to locate them. And if they're in those small tunnels, do they ever sort of interact or accidentally like barge into each other? Like how do the colony, how are the colony sort of structured? You know, that's something we really don't know. Um, unfortunately, we have tried to keep them in captivity before, um, but they don't really thrive or do very well. And then you can imagine, you know, you need to have them in like, you know, imagine a small um, ant farm sort of scenario. Well, that's the sort of thing you would need for the earthworms, you know, glass or perspex on either side to try to see what's happening. So it is quite difficult, but we do know um, they have these permanent sort of burrows that are quite an interconnected network that occur within the probably the top two metres of soil, seem to be most active in that top one metre of soil. And they also leave their cast material, which is their poo, I guess, worm poo, underground. So not like a lot of other earthworms you see in the garden where they leave their castings above ground. These actually have these big bits of soil that they put in various parts of their burrow system, almost like a toilet, and they add to it. So they probably actually have quite a complex um, social structure, which people are mm -hmm. just finding out about now with other earthworms, they've actually seen a herding type behaviour um, where the animals are quite um, social and they do um, communicate via touch. But with these earthworms, we really don't know. And uh, quite a few years ago, um, we actually did some work with a colony where we moved a colony that was in the way of a, a big freeway that was going through. So it was the first time that anybody had any done had done this translocation of an earthworm, and it did give us an opportunity to actually have a look at things um, while we were moving the earthworms. Look at things like their burrow structure, and there were a number of occasions like that where we did find crisscrossing of um, burrow systems and also earthworms that almost looked like they were interacting or had come up against each other within their where their burrow systems met. So it's something we don't know a lot about, but um, it, it poses some interesting questions about how these earthworms actually mate. So earth, the earthworms are hermaphrodite, so they have both male and female sex organs, but you do need two earthworms to meet and fertilise. So one wonders how they do that in these burrow systems that don't really come above the ground. They must meet somehow and, and um, carry out the deed. But, but they're keeping their secrets from us. They're quite shy about that. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $39.99 and save 10% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au com.au forward slash talking Australia. You've been educating people about the Gippsland earthworm for so long. How do you find people or Shane sort of react to the earthworm? Are they excited? Are they curious? Are they sort of grossed out? You know, what, what are their sort of reactions? It's, it's probably a combination of all of those things, really. 
um, in the in the area where they occur, you've got a lot of you've got a lot of hobby farmers now. You've got a lot of um, farmers that are really interested in more conservation sort of farming as well and reducing their footprint and all of those sort of things. So you do get a mixture. Most people are um, quite excited when they know they've got earthworms on their properties. Of course, there are some that are, are worried about, you know, well, if I've got earthworms, does that mean I can't undertake my farming practices? So our role really um, with land care and trust for nature and organisations like that and DELP is to try to educate the landowners who are pretty much the custodians of nearly all of the earthworm habitat because the earthworm pretty much occurs on privately owned land. Very little of it's um, on public land. So we do need to communicate and educate farmers on looking after the habitat. So most of them, I mean, the earthworm kind of has a very iconic status in, in the region and it even had a, well, it's had some books and a song written about it. It has been in the Moomba Parade. There's this great big pink um, worm that, that was afloat that was in Moomba. And then they actually used to have a festival every year called the Carmi Festival, which was a bit up made up Aboriginal term for the earthworm. So, it, you know, it does have quite a bit of an iconic status. So there are a lot of people that are very keen and actually want you to find earthworms on their properties. I want to go back to something you mentioned before about, you know, having to move a colony because of, you know, a road being constructed. I mean, what are some of the major issues for the um, giant Gippsland earthworm? You know, is it, uh, you know, urban development, farming? What are some of those biggest, what are the biggest concerns? Well, it's really a combination of factors because the earthworms are, you know, they have a very restricted range. So this is the only place they're found in the world. They are in these really small kind of um, meta populations, if you like, where their habitat characteristics are just right. They have a long lifespan. We don't know how long they live for, but it would be tens of years, maybe 50 years. I don't know, but they are very long lived. They have um, a low fecundity, so they probably only lay one earth, uh, one egg cocoon per year. Um, wow. Yeah, which is quite amazing. So a low reproductive rate. So all of these things that mean um, they are very vulnerable to um, factors that threaten them and they find it very difficult to recover. They can't just go and move. So if you make one area of habitat unsuitable for them, they can't just decide to leave and go somewhere else because they just have a very low dispersal rate as well. So all of those factors mean you've got this incredible animal living underground that is really vulnerable to threatening processes and some of those processes are changes in hydrology so soil moisture is one of the critical factors um, that help in the survival of the earthworm but that allow it to live in a certain area so a combination of soil type soil depth and um, which is predominantly clay and moisture conditions are really important so if you change the soil moisture and you dry it out conversely if you flood the area then you'll actually ruin the habitat for the earthworms and they'll die. So that's one of the, the major issues. And that can be changing in hydrology can be from urban development. So you have bigger, um, larger scale catchment um, changes as well that can alter the hydrology, any sort of physical development. So if you dig in the soil at all, you're going to end up killing the earthworms. So not a lot of people think earthworms, oh, you can just, you know, um, 
cut off their tail or cut them in half and they'll end up being two earthworms. And that's not true. It's not true for most earthworms, actually, and it's certainly not true for the giant Gippsland earthworm. So if you put a bulldozer in and you kill the earthworms or damage the earthworms and they'll end up dying, you can do that with a shovel too, a post hole, you know, digging for dams, for roads, all of those things are quite damaging to the earthworm. Um, there was lots of ploughing, for example, is something that happened in the past quite a lot. And it still does happen because we do have a bit more vegetable growing in the area now than what there used to be. But in the early days when they were ploughing up to make um, the area suitable for pasture, you know, there were lots of stories of the fields being red with blood and the earthworms hanging off the harvesters like spaghetti. So they would have been killed in huge numbers then. So you've got that sort of um, soil disturbance as well that's quite, uh, you know, that ends up killing them. Mm, And do we have a grasp on their population? Not really. We sort of, it's hard to tell. I know, so we've kind of got a fairly good idea, idea of the area in which they occur, the sort of, the roughly the sort of habitat in which they live. And, but it is difficult to get population density. So going back to that um, time when we actually moved the earthworm, that was the time when we could get a little bit of an idea of the numbers of earthworms, say per metre squared. And sometimes I'll find a population or a colony um, that maybe only seems to have one or two earthworms in that whole colony, which is really really weird and then you've got other areas like this south facing hill where we actually moved the colony and we probably got somewhere around 800 earthworms in that area which is maybe 50 by 50 meters and their density sometimes in a meter cubed was kind of 10 or 11 earthworms that was incredible but that's fairly unusual so we don't really know exactly but we do know that um they are in they can vary very much in density in these small patches and that when you change certain factors and there are colonies that I have looked at that have disappeared over time over the last 30 years that aren't there anymore particularly when you've had um when people have changed the hydrology for various reasons so we do know it's it's likely that numbers are declining um through things like urban development in particular And also one of the other really weird things about this earthworm is a lot of people associate native animals with native vegetation. So they think if you protect the native vegetation, then you protect everything in it. And that's the best way to protect um, a particular species. And that's true for most, but not for the giant earthworm that lives its entire life pretty much under pasture. And And because water and hydrology is so important, We've actually found that revegetation of habitat, um, especially with dense trees, actually dries the soil out and is bad for the earthworms. So we've really had to get our head around a different way when it comes to the earthworms because they really don't act like a lot of other native animals and that they are able, fortunately, to survive and to hang on in this um, rural landscape, I guess, in pockets of suitable habitat. Obviously, there's a lot we still don't know about them. You know, you've been studying them for several decades and you say there's still a lot we don't know about them. Where do you think future research should focus? 
I think there's probably, I'd be really good to understand more about their precise habitat requirements and particularly in terms of hydrology, given we know how crucial that is for their survival and, you know, what the impacts perhaps of climate change might be. So there's a lot more information required around that. And then, you know, I do a lot of work in urban developments where you go in and you look and find out whether there are earthworms in the areas going to be developed and you put in mitigation measures that you think are going to conserve the earthworm and protect their habitat within that development because they can survive in small pockets of suitable habitat. But what we really don't have is a lot of follow-up information on how well those conservation measures, um, how well they actually protect the earthworms. So it'd be really good to follow up a lot of that sort of stuff Genetic information about the worms too would be, we've got a little bit, but not a lot. Um, so it's really around those sort of things. And look, to be honest, even basic biology, we don't know a lot about. As you can imagine, they live underground. We don't see them on the top. We can't really keep them very well in captivity. And if we do dig them up to get information about them, you end up killing them, which is something we don't want to do. So, you know, they'd be great um, to be able to find some sort of earthworm tracker or a transmitter that you can look at dispersal of the earthworms. Um, that would be fantastic. Finding out other ways to detect them too. Maybe, you know, some sort of above ground radar or heat center sensor might be able to find them. And another actually fun idea that we've thought of is um, using sniffer dogs to track them which they do use for a lot of animals now and um, they probably could actually, could train a dog to do it for an earthworm. So I'm pretty keen on that one. So it's a very, very long shopping list. <laughs> it, is long. it is a long shopping list and one that, you know, earthworms have to compete with cute and cuddly animals like koalas and um, we all know who wins when it comes to the funding dollar when it's not a lot of it and you sort of got to share it around. So, yeah, it's a big shopping list. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Beverly. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.